0: Yeah, well, it was honestly it was just such a horrific day. You know, whenever I someone mentions it or I think back on it, it's just un, unbelievable to think that you know it all happened. But I, I think it was a, it was a tough tough moment for everyone, and I think it, we all realised all of a sudden how how dangerous you know these boats were. You know, my favourite event. My father was racing in San Francisco and, and having those high-speed reaches at plus 45 knots, knowing that we were in complete control of our machine and, and able to really, like, let it rip. So um, I don't know if anyone else besides the Australians sort of had that feeling. They were they were definitely seat of the pants there, but for us, we were, we were having a great time in the boat. Yeah, I remember that the first time we sort of Met Pete and Blair, I could see freely early on that they were two very switched on characters. You know, they were obviously very young, we're all pretty young at that age, but they were a bit younger than us. Um, they were new to the class and they were like sponges, you know, soaking up as much information as they could.
1: Hi everyone and welcome along to Broad Reach Radio, the Yachting New Zealand podcast. My name is Michael Brown, and today we talk to Australian sailor Nathan Outridge. Nathan is no stranger to the sailing world, having been an Olympic 49er champion and four-time world champion, and he's also skippered Artemis at Two America's Cups and been skipper and chief executive of the Japan Sail GP team. He talks about his journey in this podcast, from training with a young Peter Burling and Blair Chuuk and having three America's Cup syndicates all chasing him at the same time to his superstitions, and why he is seemingly so calm on a boat, but he also reflects on the low moments, like the time he was involved in a serious car crash and didn't know if he would ever be able to sail again, the trauma of seeing a teammate killed when out training, and the devastation of capsizing with Olympic gold in his sights. Those experiences have shaped Nathan as a sailor and as a person, and I thank him for sharing them with us. There is so much more we could have talked about, and he's bound to write a few more chapters in his hugely successful career. Have a listen and enjoy. Well, Nathan Outeridge, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks for having me. It's good to good to be on and to have a yarn.
1: Well, it's actually um, a bit of a a moment, I guess, for Broadreach Radio, because you're actually the first non-Kiwi we've had on the show in nearly 20 episodes. But um, you do have quite a link to New Zealand. I'm not sure how many people know, but you actually live um, here. So how long have you been living here and, and what brought you to the country?
0: Um, yeah, well, so my wife's Kiwi. Um, previously, Emma Blackman, now Emma Outeridge, and so she grew up in Auckland. Um, her father, Ross, was heavily involved in Team New Zealand for oh many of the campaigns. I think his first campaign was back when the Big Boat sailed in San Diego, um, right through till the 2013 Cup in San Francisco. So I met Emma um, in San Francisco at the America's Cup there. She was working for Louis Vuitton. Um, and, and we got together there and we, you know, we sort of had a bit of a nomadic lifestyle, um, while we were doing, I was doing the Olympic sailing and we were sort of based in Bermuda for that America's cup. And when the cup ended, um, we sort of had to make a decision on where we were going to live and, um, we fell up, it fell in Auckland. So we've been here in Auckland. We've got a house in Devonport and we've been here since sort of late 2018, um, and, yeah, this year is the first year that we're we're spending the full year in the country. Generally, we're sort of gone throughout all of winter. Um, but, yeah, so we're we're just set up here and we've got a, a little boy, Jack, who is almost two years old and, and then another baby on the way coming at Christmas. So, um, yeah, not a bad spot to hang out at the moment.
1: Oh, congratulations. That's awesome news. Hey, um, in terms of your decision, it wasn't based on who won a certain little cup in uh, 2017, was it, that uh, maybe hoping, expecting to be involved in the cup next year?
0: Honestly, it had nothing to do with that at all. It, it basically came down to we had two options. It was either Australia or New Zealand, and um, we we sort of had hoped and had planned to have a family and um, given the fact that Em's got a lot of um, friends in New Zealand that have all got kids that all live, you know, in, in Auckland, um, you know, and I'd be travelling quite a bit, it, it made sense that we would we'd be based here. So she had that support ne- network around her. Otherwise, if we're in Oz, then she'd basically be relying on my friends and family for all that support. So that was kind of a bit of the decision-making. You know, originally we had, um, you know, hoped and you know, planned to to continue on with Artemis after the America's Cup in Bermuda. Um, And, you know, we were just waiting to see where the team was going to set up and what was going to happen once um, New Zealand, um, you know, sort of made the plans for this America's Cup. And because um, it took a while and eventually Artemis pulled out, we sort of had six months or almost a year actually on the road sort of waiting to find out where we were going to be told we had to live and then when Artemis pulled out we all of a sudden had to make a decision quickly because we were homeless so uh, that's kind of how it panned out and um, yeah it's been working really nicely for us.
1: Oh, we're glad to have you too. So I guess, you know, you have been a busy lad though. Um, so have there been any logistical challenges for you living here? Because you were campaigning for Australia in the NACRA with your sister Hayley, um, and also competing for Japan in the SAIL GP.
0: Yeah, there's always logistical issues when you're involved in any form of, you know, campaigning or international sport. You know, with the Olympic stuff, it definitely made life a bit tricky. You know, my sister Haley and I teamed up um, beginning of 2018 um, and she was living in Australia and at the time we sort of spent the summer in Australia. So I got quite a bit of time in the boat with Haley there and then we decided, well, we should, you know, commit and, and do a, a European season and see how that panned out. So for 2018 it wasn't affected too badly because um, we basically got the summer training in Oz and then got equipment sent over to Europe and then raced in Europe um but it was more the the two end of that year and 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 most of 2019 where it became a bit of a challenge with Hayley based in Oz me being based here Sal GP beginning and and having a little boy um you know traveling with us last year so 2019 was was definitely a pretty hectic year for us and I don't think it really would have mattered where we were based because we were never there anyway like I was probably lucky to be in the country a hundred days last year in New Zealand,
1: that is. Wow, a nomadic existence. So you talk about being in one country for, you know, the whole year. So, you know, it's been a tough year for many people. But how do you, I guess, look back so far on twenty twenty?
0: It's 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 been a really strange year, that's for sure. You know, the year kicked off, you know, for me in Australia in January. Um, you know, preparing and training for um, the NACRA 17 worlds with Haley, And, um, you know, those worlds finished middle of February where we placed second. So it was a, it was a fantastic result for us there. Uh, but unfortunately, we, we missed Olympic selection. Um, but we, you know, I quickly rolled into SAR GP and it was meant to be a, a very busy calendar. It was going to either be insanely busy with Olympic selection and SAR GP or just normal busy with just with one of the two. And and what's ended up is, you know, we finished that event in Sydney. Um, we came back to New Zealand on, I think, the 11th of March, which was the day the pandemic was announced, and um, haven't left the country since. So it wasn't what we we're expecting at all. And, you know, given the cancellation of, you know, Sal GP for this season, given basically every sporting event you know, bar a couple being cancelled or postponed, um, you know, and and, and had we been selected for the Olympics, it would have been a very stressful year for Hayley and I because we would be trying to work out how we were going to train. Normally we would be flying between the two countries a bit. Um, That obviously isn't an option. So, you know, I think it's every every person's been affected differently, but probably for me personally, it's actually been – A a chance to to slow down for a little bit and sort of reflect on what's happened recently and try and make some plans for the future and actually get to spend a bit of time um, with with Em and Jack which I was doing but not really present you know I was often extremely busy so hasn't been hasn't been as bad as you know probably what it could have been and, and definitely no one here is bad for the majority of people in the world
1: well there's certainly a number of facets to your sailing career um but i think i'd I'd quite like to start with the olympics because um that as you talked about had been a major focus for uh, 2020 as you campaigned with hayley what was the experience like to sail with your sister
0: it was an awesome experience you know like to to be able to be representing your country and, and campaigning with a sibling is um is quite unique and um, you know, obviously, I'd sold the 49er previously to that, and Haley had sold the FX, and so she came from Helming in FX. Um, you know, probably I think she was campaigning. Also, she started her first sort of international season in 2013, so she'd done four or five years in the FX, and um, when we got to the beginning of 2018, or actually end of 2017, and um, you know, she was no longer sailing with her crew. She was at a crossroad if she was going to try and find another crew for the FX or or she was going to do something else. And at that same point, um, Goobs had been signed up to do America's Cup with Ben Ainsley's team and Artemis had just pulled out of it. So there was an opportunity for Haley and I to just do a bit of fun sailing together in the NACRA. And I think we really enjoyed sailing with each other and our skills complemented each other and, it was actually a bit of a decision who was going to drive and who was going to crew, and um, eventually I probably won that battle, you know, getting to drive the boat because I think um, I'm not very good at crewing, so that was sort of natural selection there. But um, it was it was fun, you know, learning how to sail the boat together, and we got some fantastic results, and you know, got to to go to many different countries, and you know, we two silver medals in. World Championships um, in 2018 and 2020 was, I think, something we can be really proud of. And obviously, we've got that disappointment that we, we didn't get the nod to go to the Olympics. But um, I think we can be pretty proud of what we achieved in the class.
1: So why do you think you were successful and immediately successful? Because you, you talked about, you know, teaming up in 2018 where you ended up with a silver medal at those world champs and then got another one in Geelong this year. So what was the key for you as a peer?
0: Well, I think between the two of us, we, we had the motivation and we sort of knew what was required to perform and to, to win. Um, you know, every Olympic class sort of has the same sort of ingredients. You need to have good boat speed, good boat handling, and if you got those two, then it's about how well you race. And so we focused really early in the class at learning the boat handling so that we could, you know, be competitive. And then, you know, we got – pretty quickly stuck into equipment development and understanding what makes the boat go fast whether it was the foil settings or your rudder angles or your mast and mainsail combinations which i think is pretty critical to to most high performance boats um, and yeah when we got to our horse we, we found a you know a little niche we were pretty quick in the light wind we were pretty light for the boat at that point in time so we we had some great you know speed um you know sub 12 knots and we had a lot of conditions like that there um and in the flat water we were going really well because the boat foils quite nicely in the flat water so we could extract a lot of speed out of the boat and on the windier days it was typically offshore so we sort of had windy and flat or or light onshore breezes and you know it all fell into place and and we almost won those worlds we were leading it for for quite a bit and i think just a bit of inexperience in that class and not really pushing the boat hard enough on the final gold fleet day um, cost us quite a few points and we, we lost the the worlds by one point so you know we were we were just sort of trying to see where we sat within the class and thought if we could get top 10 at the worlds that would be a good starting point for a campaign and when we almost won the worlds we we're like wow um, that's that's quite quite encouraging and so then we were sort of setting about well what do we need to do to get You know good for japan and japan conditions so then we started adapting that and um it was a bit of a tough sort of period through the middle because 2019 i think for us was really was was a bit disjointed i was getting i was very busy with the sao gp commitment trying to get the japanese team set up and organized um obviously everyone would have seen you know there was five events spread across a few different countries and a lot of those events were at really bad times for um, the the NACRA, you know, where I was often missing all the training before a big NACRA event, arriving with four or five days before racing and and trying to compete and get results, and um and that was pretty tough. And then Haley sustained an injury when we were in Japan, um, which sort of lingered for the the rest of the 2019 year. So when we got to the Auckland Worlds, so we were we were still trying to manage that injury, and it wasn't really till till January or February that she sort of got over her injury, and and, and then we put on another good performance in Geelong. So I don't know, it was it was a, it was it was a fun boat to sail, and I think you know the foiling obviously came naturally to both of us because Haley also um, did a bit of moth sailing um, a few years ago. So we weren't you know scared of the speed of the boat, and we were happy to push it to make it go quick, and I think. Some of the knowledge I'd sort of brought from the 49er class and also the America's Cup with the, the technology of the foiling um, sort of definitely helped us out in the macro.
1: So you mentioned that um, you missed out on the, the Aussie spot for the Tokyo Games uh, with Jason Waterhouse and Lisa Darman and getting the spot. You know, how did you react to that decision, given you were so close to two world titles? I think
0: it's really tough. for for federations to pick between two teams that have the capability of winning medals at Olympics Um, you know if if you if you did a point score system um, you know based off the peak events you know we were informed that the peak events would be the events in Japan in 2019 uh, and the worlds in Auckland and and also in um, Geelong so in those events, you know, we got a fourth in Japan and Jason and Lisa, I think, got a fifth or a six. And then in Auckland, they got a third and we got just outside top ten. And then in, in um, Geelong, we got a second and they got a third. So their consistency was right there with two thirds and a, and a five or a six, I don't remember. Um, and we had like a four and a two um, and, you know, I guess a discard. Um, you know, we, we had some issues in Auckland as I mentioned before, with some injuries. So that sort of held us back there. So, you know, for, for the federation, it's incredibly difficult to pick between the two teams. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, it became it became a subjective decision. You know, there was no black or white why we didn't get selected and why they got selected. We just got a phone call saying, I'm sorry, but we chose the other team with with no explanation and no, this is what you should have done to do better to get selected, which was really foreign for me because previously in the 49er class, um, you know, it was a bit more black and white. We were the the team goobs and I were the team that were getting, you know, the podium results and the other Australian teams were generally um, a bit further back. So it was it was pretty obvious, whereas this was really, really grey. And, um, you know, Haley and I are kind of going through the process now of doing a, a full campaign debrief to try and understand what areas we would have done differently to to gain that olympic spot and you now you can clearly say you know do better in racing but um sometimes results isn't the main reason you know for selection it comes down to some subjective decisions
1: as well do you see yourself going to another olympics
0: well you never say never like i remember after rio goobs and i i think we didn't even really have the conversation i think we just both acknowledged to each other that you know we were probably done in the 49er class um you know, I'd, I'd done three Olympics in the 49er, and I think it was 10 world championships. And we were probably, um, you know, wanted to be more focused on professional sailing with the America's Cup. And, um, you know, Goobs was very fortunate enough to, to get a job again with um, with INEOS this time around for this America's Cup. And um, I was hoping, you know, that when Artemis sort of fell apart, it was... I was sort of at a crossroad, you know, do I consider Olympic sailing again or do I, you know, try and work in some other pro- professional sailing and just around the same time Hayley and I pushed the go button for some NACRA Olympic sailing was when SailGP was created. So moving forward, um, another campaign, don't really know at this point in time. You know, there's a lot of factors that need to be weighed up. I think for me and and talking to Haley about, future campaigning we want to make sure if we do campaign again we we have a a clear roadmap on what will be uh, a successful campaign and um, what support we need around us and what kind of what the selection will look like I think you know we feel that you know having a a bit more of a clear path to getting selected will be important for us and trying to find areas to improve on um so and I think Olympic sailing is is close to to my heart and it's something that you know I really love I love the competition and the the patriotism that comes with it and um just really you know probably the rest of this year it's about assessing all the different options and um deciding if I if I want to do Olympic sailing who it's with which boat and um and sort of making a plan from there so sort of you know 2020s pretty much a year for everyone to, to stop and, and really sort of assess what to do. And that's what, what we're doing at the moment.
1: Hmm. Well, your first Olympics, was it, came in Beijing in 2008 in the 49 er as you said, and um, you went in as world champions. And I, I think you had a gold medal in your grasp before the, a disastrous capsize near the finish of the medal race and eventually finished fifth. So how much did that affect you?
0: yeah the the 2008 olympics i was obviously very young at the time and and very new to the the pressure of the olympics and i think you know the 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 short answer is that 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 final medal race you know really triggered a few things that it, it, it definitely you know was a, was the one that slipped away you know we were ben and i who i was sailing with at the time you know we we're a bit late to that campaign, sort of only giving it two and a half years um, in the class and, you know, got some fantastic results, always improving. You know, I think our first Worlds was a six, then we got a third and then we won. So we felt like even though we might have been a bit of an outside chance of a medal, um, reigning World Champions, um, you know, had a very good coach and team supporting us, it was the one that got away. And, um, you know, that capsize ultimately was the – You know the final nail in the coffin but you know we had made a few errors throughout the week um that you know cost us pretty badly you know and without those errors we would have been as short of a medal on that final day so you know that that was kind of a when it finished it was a, a moment for me to kind of look at all different areas of the campaign and work out what changes you know i felt needed to be made to to go that next step and i remember one of our coaches, one of our senior coaches ahead of the Olympics said, you know, if you wanna win an Olympic gold medal, you need to be bulletproof, meaning you've got to be good in every area. You know, China was very much a light wind venue and so everyone was really focusing on that. But that medal race obviously threw a curveball at everyone and you know, there was there was definitely um, some chinks in our in our armor that wasn't really, you know, bulletproof and so went away and thought about it for six months as to what would need to be done to become bulletproof, worked on a plan, worked with my um, coach Emmett and um, sort of put together a four-year plan as to what was going to, you know, ensure that gold would be secured. And, and we basically put that together and introduced Goobs to the team who I'd start with, you know, for many years in junior sailing and, um, you know, just went about it and, you you know, got good training partners around us and, um, you know, focused purely on performing in the Olympic venue in Weymouth. And, and we won, you know, five straight events there with the last one being the Olympics. So, you know, I think often you've got to have a bit of a a setback um, and you learn a lot more from that than you, you learn from the ones that win. And that's what ultimately helped us winning the gold medal in London.
1: Is that also when you became superstitious or were you like that before beijing because became known that you wouldn't shave or cut your hair during a regatta and i think i read somewhere that you said the scruffier looked the faster you would be
0: i love all those funny quotes they're quite good aren't they i think that superstition's just an interesting one it's just a, a good good guideline you know like it was funny you know that the, the no haircuts and shaving was actually passed on to me from malcolm page who's um you know, two-time gold medalist in the 470 class from Australia. He was he was my roommate at a lot of these events um, through China and and the the London Olympics. And I actually, when I was sailing 470s prior to that, before the Athens Olympics, um, I you know looked up to Malcolm. He was sort of took me under his wing, and he and Nathan Wilmot and you know, they, they shared a few of their, their um traditions and superstitions and um, it just sort of passed on to us. And he just said, Nathan, remember, you can't cut your hair or have a shave at any of these events. So kind of that's where it came from. And, um, you know, the Olympics in, in London actually went for quite a long time. I think it was a, a 10-day race period. So you end up getting pretty scruffy by the end of it.
1: Are you still like that? Do you still refuse to shave and, and cut your hair?
0: Well, yeah, I think you know if you're in a long event like the America's Cup that goes for months, you kind of can't do it. But definitely on the the, the standard, you know, six day events, um, yeah, it's, you don't have, you don't have time for that. You're busy focusing on performing.
1: Any other superstitions?
0: Well, the other one is you're not meant to wear event clothing that's handed to you at events, which is really hard to do at the Olympics because all your clothing's handed to you. Um, but you know you can't wear the regatta hat or t-shirt or anything like that. That's that's silly. You you, you got to wait till the event's over.
1: What's the superstition behind that?
0: Oh, you just lose if you do stuff like that. I don't know. It's just just it's like I guess maybe it's an Australian superstition, but you know, no one who I knew growing up, you'd basically get your shirt or your hat and you just put it to the side and you'd wear it at, a, at an event in the future, but you wouldn't wear it during the event.
1: Well, obviously, um, worked for you in London because you won that in pretty convincing fashion, um, having secured the gold before the medal race. Did that gold make up for Beijing?
0: Um, yes and no. Like, I, I think, you know, in Beijing, I was obviously sailing with a different person with Ben. And so, you know, I think we would have loved nothing more than the two of us to win our medal there, um, because, you know, that was our team effort. Whereas London was, you know, it was a new team with me and Goobs. And for me personally, I was, you know, pretty focused on, on, you know, righting the wrongs of, of Beijing. And I think when we, when we crossed the finishing line ahead of that medal race, I just remember feeling extremely relieved that, you know, we didn't mess it up and that all that work that we'd put into those four years was, you know, was for something. Um, you know, if you could wind back time and fix a few things in 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 um, China, it definitely would have. but um, you know China was definitely the one that got away winning a gold medal in London. I think having gone through the setbacks before that definitely I think I, I you know I enjoyed the gold medal more because I know how difficult it is to win. It's not something that just gets handed out to you very easily. You've actually got to work for it. and so that was that was probably the biggest thing for me is that, you know, I I realised how easy it is to be in a good position and and not secure it. So that was, um, you know, it was a huge reward for that. And, um, you know, we look back on that with, you know, very fond memories for the rest of my life.
1: Well, joining you on that podium was um, a couple of young Kiwis by the name of Peter Burling and Blair Chook, who were also your training partners in those days. Um, What were your impressions of those two back then?
0: Yeah, I remember that the first time we sort of met Pete and Blair, it was uh, it was a coach Nathan Hanley, you know, from New Zealand, who who asked us, you know, could we come and do some sailing with this young Kiwi team that have just started in the 49er class. And um, I knew Nate for for many years prior to this, and he said, look, well, come on over. It was probably Easter 2000. And, nine you know meet the boys and you know maybe you can develop a bit of a training partner relationship with them and and help them out a bit and we came over here and i remember um pete's dad picked us up from the airport and we met pete and blair down at the boat park and they had all the equipment all set up and ready for us and i could see really early on that they were two very switched on characters you know they were um obviously very young we're all pretty young at that age but they were a bit younger than us um they were new to the class and they were like sponges, you know, soaking up as much information as they could um, and very happy to, to share what they thought, their opinions, what they were learning. And um, it just developed slowly over the, the three years that we sort of trained together, a really good training partner relationship, you know, where we were very open with what we thought was fast with equipment and how to sail the boats and even to the point of how to race and venue and weather and and it was a it was a it was a fantastic way to operate and i think probably it wasn't till about halfway through that so until the perth worlds which was the end of 2011 where pete and blair got silver um after I think coming outside the goal fleet in the first world then they were about 17th at the next worlds in 2010 and then by the time they got to 2011 um they were podium contenders is when I think goobs and I started to realize that actually these are the guys that we need to be most worried about and the guys that we need to beat you know initially it was like we didn't know who was the other main challenge because it was often rotating a lot among the other teams you know the 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 other main contenders it was quite varied but by the time we got to 2011 it was clear that these guys were were improving at a rapid rate and i thought it was fantastic for us because the more they improved the more we improved the better you know we got the higher the chances were of winning medals and um going into the olympics you know i remember a few weeks out you know we would be exclusively training with those guys and we had another australian team of of will phillips who was doing a fair bit of sailing with us, who was, you know, pushing us. And we had, a, um, you know, a, a smaller group of other Australians, Luke Parkinson and, and um, Fang Warren, who were training with us. And I just remember just thinking, wow, like, you know, it's, um, it's a great group that we were put together. And when the Olympics began, it was pretty clear from early on that, you know, if, if we sail to the best of our abilities and they sail to the best of their abilities, um, we're going to get medals. It was just a question of who who sailed the best that week. And um, I think, honestly, we both sailed fantastically well. And um, I think the scorecard reflected that. And it was, it was such an enjoyable Olympics for me to see them succeed the way that they did and, and know that the reason why we won the gold medal was partly because of them pushing us and I'm sure them winning a silver medal was because we were pushing them
1: well they've obviously gone on to some fairly uh, extraordinary feats so do you feel like you've sort of played a part in their subsequent success
0: well I think in the early days you know we we played a part in each other's development and I think um you know I just remember you know Pete would stay with me a lot when he'd come to Australia and I got him you know talked him into getting into the moth class and got him to come and do a few events and it was very clear that you know he had a mechanical brain he could see how the boats developed he'd like to tinker with them he loved setting the foils and trying to find ways to make the boat go quicker and we would just spend hours and hours together just talking about it and focusing on you know different ways to improve the boats and you know Goobs and Blair were a part of that as well and Tom Slingsby, um, you know, was always with us doing the same thing. So it was, you know, like-minded people, you know, stick together and and develop. And I think it probably wasn't until those London Olympics finished and then Goobs and I got involved with the America's Cup and we sort of then spent way less time in the 49 or less time in Australia that, you know, we then weren't in a position to work with the Kiwis. And I think, you know, Pete and Blair were probably also thinking, well, if we want to go one better, Um, we need to sort of go our own separate way here a bit now and and develop a little bit differently because, um, you know, circumstances, but also that's generally what you want to do. If there's a team that you're trying to peg down, you've got to find ways to to move past them and and they did a great job of that.
1: Mm. You mentioned that you became involved in the America's Cup soon after um, London, but you did campaign in the 49ers still. So how difficult was it to juggle the two?
0: It was incredibly difficult. It was it was very very stressful and and very very time consuming and you know for a f- for a few factors we were we were sailing the 49er representing Australia and our coach uh, Emmett Lazic was was based in Sydney so he you know if we wanted to sail on the water with his coaching support we either needed to get to Sydney where he could coach us or we could often convince him to come to Lake Macquarie where we lived, which was um, about two hours' drive north of Sydney. Um, But our America's Cup commitments were with Artemis Racing, which were based initially in San Francisco for um, 2013 and 14, so the first two years of the, the Olympic cycle. And then when we got to 2015, the team then moved to Bermuda, and Bermuda's about as far as you can get from Australia um and we were we were heavily groups and i were heavily involved in the development of the boats um for the the cup in in bermuda and we were often on calls with designers and talking to a number of the different boat builders about you know configuration and so we were you know full-time employees of an america's cup team given a bit of leave here and there to go and do some 49er sailing and when we originally discussed it with Ian Percy and, and Torbin Tornquist, the, the the owner of the team, we said, look, you know, we feel that, you know, for us to keep developing as sailors, it's, you know, it would be great for us to keep doing Olympic sailing. We'd really love to do that. And, and they gave us their full support. Um, but obviously you can't just dedicate all your time to your Olympic sailing. They said, you know, your primary focus is, the america's cup and um you know as skipper and and wing trimmer of the team we really are going to rely on you for a lot of the development um so we basically you know had a bit of a plan on how many events we could do a year and how many training blocks we could do a year and it was i think it was around three or four events a year we could get time off to do with an, an additional three or four camps so we were probably sailing half of what we would have done in the lead up to to london in terms of time in the boat and um a lot of the way that we would set our training up um we just didn't have that flexibility in the in the olympic 49er anymore and if the weather wasn't good for equipment development camp um it was too bad we couldn't just wait a week we just we had to basically get on a plane and go back and there was, you know, months on end where we would basically do two weeks in Australia, 49er sailing, get on a plane, fly to San Francisco, two weeks in San Francisco sailing, get off, get on a plane and go back, and we just bounced back and forward, and it was, it was just busy and, and and hectic, and I think, you know, looking back, it definitely didn't give us the best chance of winning a gold medal in the 49er class, but I think Goob's and I were both. Would say that you know we we enjoyed the challenge and we're very proud that we were able to achieve a silver medal given um, you know the situation that you know we were in and and um, you know no regrets at all it was it was fantastic.
1: Had you always had the ambition to be involved in in the Americas Cup? You know you you joined Artemis fairly quickly after London.
0: No, to be honest, I didn't. You know, growing up as a as a young kid in Australia. Um, you know, obviously, knew of the America's Cup. You know, Australia was the first country to win an America's Cup, um, and and uh, that was that was fantastic. But as you know, I was you know doing a lot of my junior sailing in the nineties. You know, Australia wasn't really you know performing well in the America's Cup. You know, they were they were in San Diego, and obviously, Jimmy had his his young Australia team in two thousand in um, in the Auckland Cup but you know the main sailing that you know i was exposed to growing up as a kid was the 18 foot skiffs that were on tv you know these fast fun exciting boats that crashed and capsized and the, the language was colorful and it was it was an entertaining kind of show that they were putting together on tv and i always just it as a kid i want to get into t- to those kind of boats i want to get into the boats that go quick and, and that crash and, and have a lot of skill to sail the sail them. and you know you're on the edge of capsizing all the time so I follow the 18s very closely um, and then the 18-foot skiff sort of died a little bit when the 49er was introduced for the the Olympics and so then I sort of shifted and thought, well, 49er, that would be a great boat to sail. Chris Nicholson, who was sort of leading the charge internationally in in both the 18s and 49ers, was a local boy from Lake Macquarie and as a kid I'd, I'd see him out training on the lake and when I was catching the bus home from school every day and I thought, yep, that's the boat for me, that's what I want to sail. And so that's where I focused a lot of my time and effort, hence why I went down the Olympic path. And um, after the London Olympics, or sort of during that, um, I remember, you know, in terms of the Cup, the Dita Gift happened in 2010 um, with the big catamaran versus the trimaran, and and that took my interest because that was, you know, really cool technology, big boats going you know, pretty fast considering the the amount of wind speeds that they were sailing in. And then when they announced that they were going to go into to these catamarans, and I saw the World Series begin in the the AC Forty Fives, and um, they were starting to hire younger people um, to be involved in that. With you didn't necessarily need to have keelboat experience, which is often quite hard to get for a youngster in Australia. I just thought those boats looked pretty cool, and I'd love to get an opportunity to sail on one of those. And um, wasn't very long until I got a call to join team Korea and you know, they asked me, could I, could I drive the boat? Cause Chris Draper had left and he'd gone to Luna Rossa. And um, it was a tough decision because, you know, I got this call six months before the Olympics. I'd put all my time and effort into preparing to, to win this Olympic gold medal with goobs. But then here again, I'm having an opportunity to get my foot in the door in the America's cup, which, you know, is very hard to get. And so I, I I I took the opportunity and I joined Team Korea and um, I think, you know, we got some great results with that team Um, and we had the likes of Giles Scott on board as well who, you know, is a a gold medalist now in the Finn class and he works, you know, he was with Ben Ainsley for the last two cups. And so we, you know, got some great results and then I got a phone call pretty much straight after um, the Olympic gold medal in London and, you know, saying, hey, are you you interested in… Joining Artemis, and I, I obviously jumped at that opportunity. And because um, you know, the first year of an Olympic cycle, there's not a whole lot on the cards. And I thought, well, these 72s look amazing, you know, I'd love to get involved in that. And you know, they're great, they were great boats. And the, the exposure I got to working in big teams and the design and everything has just been amazing. And you know, I just feel so fortunate to, to get that phone call at that moment and, and take that opportunity.
1: But it wasn't the only phone call you got, was it? There were a couple other suitors calling up.
0: Well, I think at that time all the teams were realising that you know young sailors who have foiling experience um, were were going to be very useful for the teams. You know, uh, if you're a good at a keel boat, didn't really translate across to to these foiling catamarans. And so, yeah, I, I was approached by Artemis and, and and Team New Zealand and Luna Rossa, and they all sort of were asking my availability and sort of had had to weigh it up and I just couldn't really I don't think like now looking back on it it's it it just sort of blows me away at the time I think I was just sort of young and naive and just thinking wow this is amazing this is really cool but thinking back on it it was it was really unique um position to be in and um and, and ended up choosing to go with Artemis Racing who were going to be based in San Francisco for the entire time in the lead up to the cup and I knew Ian Percy fairly well through Olympic sailing and his star sailing, and I knew he was, you know, heavily involved in the team. And so, um, you know, it was it was it was a fantastic, I think, decision in the end. Obviously, the Artemis boat wasn't the quickest, and um, we had a few issues when I first joined. But I think learning, um, I learnt a lot being a part of that. And you know, I remember sitting in a few meetings early on, just listening. and and trying to understand how it's all working and then they they turn and ask me a few questions and i just thought i'm not qualified to really answer anything right now i'm just a, a young kid here i just want to learn from you guys and they were they were really interested in what i knew about moth sailing and the foiling attributes of the boat and how they maneuver and this and that because they were trying to compare was foiling going to be faster than than not foiling and um you know i i sort of you know, gave my two cents, and 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 Kurt said, "Wow, you know, what what else? What else do you think?" And Ian and I had many conversations, you know, and we we lived in the same building and, and just spent a lot of time together, um, just talking about yachting, which you know I'll, I'll remember for a long time, and some some fantastic discussions.
1: Yeah, you went on to have the key position of of helm, and you know, are you the type of person who feels natural sort of leading a team and, and dealing with all the pressures and responsibilities that come with it?
0: Um, I think that you know you, you, there's all different types of leadership and I'm not the type of person who's going to stand in front of a group and give them a big rah-rah speech come on let's go guys but you know what I am very happy to do and what I feel very comfortable doing is you know leading by example you know whether it's on the water you know, pushing through a, you know, a, a testing session or racing and basically having the confidence to handle the boat and to push the boat and develop the boat. And in the design meetings, you know, talking about, you know, how the boat feels and being, you know, I feel very comfortable to to question a lot of the designers about, you know, that type of foil or that type of control system and how we develop it and, and, and do a lot of brainstorming. So I think, on the on the smaller groups and when you're developing and you're having those discussions feel completely comfortable and I think when you have enough of those discussions that the people around you kind of um, you know work but I, I guess if you said you know leadership you know rah, rah rah let's go win that that's not my form of leadership but I, I was never once felt that I was sort of out of my depth I felt like I just I was nurtured into it very well, I'd say, by Ian Percy. Ian's, you know, got some fantastic people skills, and and he was sort of like always empowering me. You know, Nathan, what do you think? Nathan, let's do this, okay? You you run the on water program, and he was he was really good at sort of, um, I guess, getting me to come out of my shell a little bit because it is very different to sailing. Um, you know, yeah, a boat that's just got two
1: people. Now you mentioned that there were a couple of difficult moments with their campaign and you were at the wheel when um, Andrew Bart Simpson was tragically killed after the, the hull of Artemis collapsed and the boat um, capsized and how did that affect you?
0: Yeah, well, it was honestly, it was just such a horrific day. And um, you know, whenever I, someone mentions it or I think back on it, it's, it's just um, unbelievable to think that, you know, it all happened, but uh I think it was a it was a tough tough moment for everyone. And I think it we all realised all of a sudden how how dangerous, you know, these boats were and what we were doing was so dangerous. And I think up until that point there'd been plenty of near misses, um, you know, with, with people getting, you know, nearly injured and this and that, but all of a sudden it, it, it hit home really hard and I remember, um, you know, it, it hit no one harder than Ian. Obviously, you know, Bart was his best mate and um there was a real crossroad, I think, for the team and a number of fit, number of us in it. It was like, okay, is it really worth, you know, doing what we do, you know, if, if that could happen to someone? Um, and the other, you know, big point was like, well, you know, we we need to push on in memory of Bart, but we need to make sure we're going about this the right way. So there was a lot of a lot of meeting, and I remember Torbjorn came over to show his support to the whole team and said, look, you know, we. I'm not going to pressure anyone into doing anything they don't want to do, but if you would like to, to get the second boat, you know, finished and get it on the water and get racing, then, you know, we should definitely do that. And um, I remember Ian spent a lot of time back in the UK during those early few weeks, you know, with Leah, Bart's wife and the family, and he, he kind of said, look, Nathan, you know, you probably, you know, we're, we're the, our second boat was already designed to go foiling, you know, Nathan, you just work with the designers and, and the rest of the sailing team to try and get it up and running and, and design a a um, on water training and test program for the boat and, and everyone's skills that'll get us into the racing safely. And so, you know, I, I took it on and I, I said, Look, okay, look, I believe that, you know, before we can, you know, enter a race, we need to have all the basic skills down pat. You know, we need to be able to to maneuver, we need to be able to handle Bearing away at high speeds and we need to be doing foiling jibes and and I said you know I think it's probably going to take us 15 days to work that out and um, and in the end it took us seven days to get to our first foiling jibe and um, we started in in, in lower wind strengths and slowly built our way into it and you know we hadn't even done a practice start really before that first um, race against Luna Rossa but I think everyone felt that the way that we recovered um, and 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 the process we went through to to do it in a, a safe manner while still you know trying to do it as quick as we could so that we could actually race you know was was done well and I it gave me a lot of confidence to know that a lot of people in the team you know really you know supported sort of the the roadmap that I'd worked on with a couple of other people in the team and. You know, for us, you know, even though we didn't win a race, it was a huge success to get the boat on the water, and um, you know, it was a—it's just a bit of a bit of a bittersweet kind of memory for me that whole event because the boats were fantastic and a huge challenge to sail, but they'll always be that reminder of of what happened to Bard, and it's—it's it's just really tough thinking back
1: on it. It's not the only difficult moment in your life, though, is it? Because uh, as a teenager, you're involved in a. A serious car accident um what happened there
0: yeah well that's that's different entirely and, and this one actually has a really good happy ending which is which is nice i i was basically you know at 18 um in australia and, and you know doing a lot of sailing um throughout australia and was driving from um where I'd finished a, a laser nationals down to, to do some Melbourne in Melbourne. So I was sort of driving from Lake Macquarie to Melbourne, which is a 12 hour drive and, um, and fell asleep at the wheel in the middle of the day and, and the car, you know, crashed into a tree um, and, and I sustained some pretty, pretty bad injuries. I had a, a really bad spinal injury, uh, which saw me in hospital for a month and some serious operations to, to repair a burst fracture in my lumbar spine and, you know, I spent a month in hospital at the age of 18. Had my 19th birthday in there, so it's it's not the place any teenager wants to be. But it was um, it's an interesting thing when you look back on that. It was obviously terrible at the time and, and really hard for my family, particularly I think, to deal with. You know, not knowing what what was going to happen. Um, if I was going to be able to walk out of that hospital, or am I going to be in a wheelchair and would I ever get back to, to sailing, which was obviously something that I I really loved, but I think, you know, the the biggest takeaway I have from that is that um, it was a huge shock to the system. It made me realise I wasn't wasn't bulletproof, which I think every teenager thinks they are, and it made me really appreciate, you know, what I had and what I was doing and made me really focus on what I wanted to do moving forward. And, you know, even today, you know, when I'm out doing things on the water, I just think, you know, how I, I could be missing out on all of this if, you know, that, that surgery that I did didn't go as well as it did. And, um, you know, this, it's, it's just such a, you know, it's, it's a bit of a distant memory now because it's so long ago. It was you know, almost 15 years ago now. But it's, um, yeah, those sort of things definitely shape
1: who you are. You come across as quite calm and and laid back. Is that a a result of this accident and and your rehabilitation and the time you had to think or have you always sort of been like that out on the water?
0: I think it's a bit of both. You know, I think, you know, I I was generally quite a calm sailor. You know, I think that I just enjoy the sailing and the racing and it's very rare that I get, you know, um, agitated or upset or stressed about anything because at the end of the day, I I now know, you know, given the experiences that I've been through, you know, just to appreciate all the moments that you're in and um, don't let it worry you. Just, just embrace it and enjoy it. And, you know, generally if you're you're in a competition and you're trying to win an event, you're either going to win because you're good enough or you're not going to win because you're not good enough. And so there's nothing you can do it at that point in time. So if you put in the, the time and the effort into your training and you're prepared, you um, then there's no reason to be stressed and and if you're on, in a big race and things aren't going your way, if you just keep chipping away and go back to your basics um, and, and, you know, we would always say you just grind it out, um, you slowly pick your way back through the fleet and if you don't do it in that race, well, you'll do it in another one and so that's sort of how I sort of take to everything and it's, I only get frustrated when I know I haven't put the time and effort in or I know that... Um, you know, it's it's going to be a lot more difficult than it should be, and that's when you you can get very frustrated on the water. But you know, you've only got yourself to blame if that happens.
1: Mm, that's a good perspective. I mean, there's always a lot at stake, and particularly in in the Americas Cup. And is that kind of the the most highly pressured situation you found yourself in?
0: Well, for sure, you know that the Americas Cup is you know massive amounts of pressure there's a lot of media attention on it in the sailing world and there's a lot of money involved you know you've got sponsors and and, and owners of teams you know are investing you know tens of millions of dollars on on these races and um, they're putting all their trust in you to to deliver and um, so you you can think of it as if okay you know it's extremely, stressful you're under a lot of pressure but you know the way i approached it was that you know we are, we were a team of many people um and so it wasn't just the six sailors on the race boat that day we had you know our whole coaching support team we had our reserve sailing team that were always there you know just to, to support and to ensure we were getting the maximum out of ourselves you got your entire design team your build team your shore team you know you get to 100 people and you're just one of the cog obviously you know for me i was you know at, at the wheel so there was more responsibility and pressure on me but I just look at the faces of everyone every day and just know that they all had the belief that we could do the best that we could and I looked at them and I knew they'd done everything they could to to get the boat to be as fast as it is and to be re- reliable as it was and um, you know I, I, I just thoroughly enjoyed um, being in that environment and I remember those days in Bermuda and press conferences before and after racing and, and debriefs before and after racing and you know moments in in the races itself and just think man that was it's an unbelievable challenge to be a part of and i remember torbion would often say to the group um you know it's an irresistible challenge the america's cup because it's so unique because it's not just a sailing race it's a it's a it's a business management race and a design competition, and at the end of the day that there is a race that happens that you know where you get measured, but the journey of an America's Cup team in um, an event is is, is really um, it's just an amazing experience to be a part of.
1: Well, sorry to bring this one up, but um one of the enduring images of you of that Bermuda campaign was was falling off the boat when racing. Team New Zealand, I'm just wondering, did you shave that morning or have a haircut? You know, what happened there?
0: No, no I didn't, but, you know, like that obviously it, ha- it happened in the race and, um, you know, I put my hand up. I could have definitely done a better job of trying to stay on board there, but I think what it really showed you was how difficult the boats were to sail when you're pushing them to the limits. You know, crossing the boat, um, you know, you're trying to do it as quick as you can uh, because the sooner you get back to the wheel, the sooner the boat locks in and gets back up to speed. And we are turning the boat so quickly and the manoeuvres to keep them foil tacking that when you do straighten the boat up, um, you know, your, your trajectory ends up in a different direction to the boat. And if you just make one missed foot across the boat, you end up instead of standing on the net, you're now on the back beam and then you're sliding. And, um, you know, I, I think that the majority of the people in our team would have fallen off the boat at one point in time in training. Um, you know, it's. Often the guys who are going around the back of the wing who are the ones that are most vulnerable because when you're tacking, you, you get the full whip around the back. And I, I know speaking to, you know, many other members on other teams, I, I, I know Glenn Ashby stepped overboard in some in a training session. I saw Pete go over once, um, Slingsby, Spidhill, you know, Chris Droper. They all went over at one point in time in training. It's just really unfortunate for me that mine happened in a race. So... Um, you know i think it just really shows you how difficult the boats were to sail and 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 when you are you know racing them on the edge it happens you know it happens in dinghies and it happens all the time and that's why now on on the saudi gp circuit we're all tethered on because um you know it's dangerous if you fall overboard and there's a boat following you behind whether it's another race boat or an umpire boat or something you you are uh, at risk and so sal gp you know did make those changes so that no one can fall overboard now and Tell you what, we, I think we're all very thankful for that because, um, you know, I've had someone hanging off the back of the boat on a tether before uh, because um, same thing happened. We turned the boat fast and they started sliding across the aft fairing, across the back beam, and then the tether grabbed them so they couldn't go overboard. Um, so that's just what happens in sailing sometimes.
1: Did you feel like you weren't far off with their Artemis team?
0: We were very close, I think. Um, you know, if you look at the results, we were probably, if you trace it all back, the, the second best team there in the end. I think, you know, Team New Zealand obviously had, had a healthy edge when it came to boat speed and particularly in certain wind ranges. But the two races we competed against Oracle in, in the Round Robins, we, we beat them in both of those. And um, I feel like, you know, with the racing against Team New Zealand, um, at, we were starting well, our, our reaching and downwind speed was there. But they just had a, a better VMG upwind than us. You know, the, the higher spec foils that they were running um, definitely gave them an edge upwind. And sometimes it didn't matter where we tacked on them to try and hold them behind, they, they inevitably found a way around us. And so when you've got a boat that's got a, a click of it, boat speed advantage upwind, um, it's pretty hard to keep them behind. And, you know, when the match rolled around and we saw how easily Team New Zealand beat Oracle, I think a few of us in our team felt a little bit better, you know, because we we challenged Team New Zealand probably the most out of anyone, and we were very close to to to, to making it into the final. You know, an odd mistake here or there, um, you know, hurt us. But I, I feel like we we kind of knew as a team that we had to sail out of our skin to beat them, um, because their you know their package was just just that little bit quicker. Um, but I think considering if you look back to where Artemis were at the previous America's Cup and that, you know, it was it was a really tough time in San Francisco for many reasons, you know, the boat was nowhere near fast enough and, and there was a lot of internal sort of issues that needed to be sorted out. So, you know, you never win in your first America's Cup attempt, but we got pretty bloody close in the second one. and you know, the fact that I think we we leapfrogged Oracle was, was really impressive. And I think everyone in the team, you know, was upset when we didn't win, but also very proud of the, the improvement the team had made from the one before.
1: Yeah, there was quite a lot of uncertainty, I guess, after that that carf and, and you know, Russell Coots and Larry Allison started talking about sale GP and, and what did you sort of think when they knocked on your door?
0: Yeah, it was an interesting time. Like, I, I do recall that prior to the racing happening in Bermuda that, you know, the, a number of the teams made agreements that, you know, these boats are fantastic and whoever wins, you know, we should agree that we'll we'll continue this formula moving forward. And the only team that objected was Team New Zealand. So when Team New Zealand won, it, it definitely meant there was a huge amount of uncertainty of what was going to happen with the America's Cup. And um, when... It went on for as long as it did. Um, you know, I think it took until Christmas before there was an announcement about the boat and the rule. You know, that six months um, was really tough. You know, I'd made a commitment to to Artemis to be involved with them for another America's Cup. So I was, you know, with them regardless of what was going to happen. And then when the rule came out and we looked at it all and realised that that wasn't really going to be um, an option. And Torbjorn said ultimately at the end, no, I don't want to do the Americas Cup. Um, it kind of left me in a position of, okay, well, well, what do we do? What do I do now? Because you know, all the other cup teams that you know got together, they got their personnel, and they were all committed, you know. And and that was when. You know, there was rumours in the background that Russell and Larry were, you know, trying to put together Sal GP and basically use the, the 50s again in an international racing circuit. And Torbjorn at the time said, actually, no, I think that's more interesting to me. So he wanted to, to, um, to get involved in that. And for whatever reason, that never eventuated. And when Russell found out that, that Torbjorn wasn't going to do it and therefore I was, you know, available to be a part of SARGP, um, he approached me and said well, well look you know Tom's got the Australian team already um, lined up but we really want to get a Japanese team together and um, we think that the Japanese market's an important market for Sal GP and um, and we'd love you to to come and drive the boat and and more than that we'd like you to be the CEO and and manage the team um, overall as opposed to just a sailing role so that that was a pretty exciting opportunity for me and you know I pretty um pretty impressed with with russell's attitude to say look you know a lot of sailors get you know opportunities to sail but they never get a chance to sort of do more than that and i know russell has strong opinions about you know sailors you know can do more than just drive boats so he said look you know the likes of you and tom and draper i think you know should be able to take this opportunity on board and and, and pick your shore team and put together a commercial team and a, you know, and a marketing team. And um, so he put me in contact with Fuku, um, who um, is a very, you know, well-known Japanese America's Cup sailor and, you know, was involved with SoftBank Team Japan. And, and together we basically put the team together from scratch and, and set off for, for Season 1 where we, we competed really closely against um, Tom's Australian team. Pretty much in every event right up until that final match race so it was it was a cool cool opportunity to get involved in
1: Mm, no you did really well and and clearly the top two teams that year but i guess interested to know what it was like because you went from sailing against one other boat to say five other boats and you know on the start line it all be jostling and then winging it for that um that first mark and often it's sort of 40 knots so what was it like when you know it was that full pace uh, and close contact
0: i think for, for me personally like it was it wasn't that different you know obviously there was more boats on the start line but you, you when the boats go so fast, you've really got to try and not engage with the other teams too much because all they do is you just slow each other down quite a bit. But, you know, we, our team was, was you know, for me, very similar to what we had with the Artemis team. You know, I had Goobs on the wing who was with us at Artemis and I had Luke Parkinson as our flight controller who was one of our grinders in Bermuda and effectively flew the boat in all the manoeuvres. So what we were really missing um, was um, Ian Percy, you know, with his tactical input. Um, and and we had a few different grinders because we we had the Japanese grinders with us as opposed to our Artemis grinding team. So the boat felt, you know, I felt very at home in the boat with the people around me, and and I just had to do a bit more of the tactical decision-making without Ian. Um, But, you could see some of the other teams were obviously very new to it, and um, it was pretty clear early on that, you know, Tom Slingsby's team and, and the people he had in our team were, the ones with the most experience. So we would often try and set ourselves up in the race to to not engage with many people too early on, and and, and inevitably it'll be the two of us sort of fighting it out once we get round the bottom marks, and and that's sort of how it, it felt. So you know, my favourite event by far was racing in San Francisco and and having those high speed reaches at plus forty five knots, knowing that we were in complete control of our machine and, and they're able to really like let it rip. So. Um, I don't know if anyone else besides the Australians sort of had that feeling. They were they were definitely seat of the pants there, but for us we were we were having a great time on the boat.
1: And What was it like then racing for, you know, that one million dollar purse in the in the final that was you know, they made quite a big deal of that.
0: Yeah, it was it was a huge race and it was, you know, being built up all year long and I think, you know, we kind of both knew through the two teams that were going to be in that from early on in the season. So a lot of it was about prepping for that one race. Um, You know, it was a really strange day because the weather was not so good at all on the proposed race course. And it was at one point looking like they were just going to cancel the race completely. You know, we had a long range forecast of like 25 knots or 30 knots and that never eventuated. And eventually they moved the race course out into this part of the bay that we'd never raced in marseille before there was spectators all throughout the race course it was quite hectic and stressful and we didn't even know how long we had to the start for a lot of that and it, we were actually late to enter the start because it was really hard to get clear communications from the race committee and um anyway we we, we got in there and the, and the race kicked off and, and the Australians I guess also had you know str- struggles with communication because they actually entered a bit early and got a penalty for that so you know we got the upper hand early on and I just thought you know it's a 12 minute race and um, someone's going to make a mistake which will mean the other boats in front and if that boat doesn't make the mistake they'll win and so it was just who was going to make the least number of mistakes because the boats go same speed and we got ahead and we, we kept the Aussies ahead for the majority of the race and then um, final jibe under the bottom mark. We went to just plan to jibe right in front of them. And um, we just didn't get the board on the lock as quick as we'd hoped. It took, you know, a second and a half longer than a standard jibe for us because it hit the water at a a bit too positive and we had to wait for the, the cylinder basically to push it onto the lock. And when you're doing 40 knots in the wrong direction for a second and a half, um, can cost you pretty badly and they got biased. so it was it was a really sort of a disappointing finish for us i think most of the season <clears throat> you, you couldn't split us and the australians but they seemed to manage to win more of the the match races than we did you know our only turn was in new york but um i think tommy knew that you know it was it was going to be 50 50 who won and it was about who made the least mistakes on the day and They basically made one and we made one, but ours was the the last mistake to make. So they ended up winning it. So um, love to to get another go at getting into that million dollar race um, when the season kicks off next year.
1: Yeah. So you will be involved again with the Japanese team. I mean, assuming that the COVID world lets us uh, travel and compete again.
0: Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, GP are making announcements as we speak about, you know, future events. There's now four events confirmed. Um, We've got two in the States and then two in Europe, and I expect there'll be a couple more announced um, in the coming weeks. So we should have quite a good fleet. And then, um, you know, it's our intention to have the Japanese team there and competing, and we're just working on the details right now on who's going to be involved in the team and how it's all going to work under a COVID Rule, but um, you know it's fantastic to know that Larry really wants the event to to work and to be a success, and um, really am um, looking forward to to getting into it next season.
1: Where do you see the whole competition going? Because of course Ben Ainsley and his Ineos team joined this year, and then we got Peter Burling and Bleachuke and their New Zealand team joining the uh, next year as well. Um, so you know, what's where do you see the the Sale GP event? heading towards
0: i think the the goal of the event and, and where it's going to go is it's it's going to be the the pinnacle racing circuit um you know one design boats that are going to travel around the world and it's going to attract the likes of the best sailors like as you said pete and blair joining is this fantastic you know a guy like ben ainsley came and raced with us in sydney he'll want to be a part of it moving forward um you know tom and myself you know we'll have a team each in racing and, the goal is to attract some of the, the best sailors, you know. Maybe someone like Jimmy Spittle might um, come and join once the America's Cup is over. And the goal is to, to get more um, countries involved in it. You know, there's there's a lot of great sailors coming out of Olympic sailing and out of um, other high-performance foiling boats. And if you at all want to be involved in a racing circuit with fast-foiling boats, this is, this is going to be the top of it. It's, it's obviously very different than the America's Cup because there isn't a design element to it. It's a much smaller team. Um, but I, I think that it, it'll just keep growing. And I think, um, you know, after these Olympics in Tokyo finish, there'll be some stars that win medals there, which I'm sure Russell will be contacting and helping them get teams up and running so they can come and participate.
1: Do you think there's room for both the SAIL GP and America's Cup in the future?
0: I think there's room for both for sure because they are two very different events. One event is prestige. You know, the America's Cup is that legacy of design, development, big teams chasing this irresistible challenge. Um, and I think there'll always be a place for that in the world. And I think there'll always be billionaires out there that want to win the America's Cup. So I don't think that's at risk in any way. And I think there is a place for, for Sar G P because it's it's your um, travelling circuit. It's it's racing, it's, you know, gonna be ten events minimum every year with some of the best teams and that's where sailors are really gonna get tested and, and pushed to the elements and they know that it's not the fact that their boat's faster than the other person, it's that they're actually better. So I think, you know, as a sailor you'd love to be involved in both. Whether that's possible or not, I don't know. But definitely the two events can sit side by side um, and not detract from each other.
1: And what does the future hold for Nathan Outerbridge,
0: Outeridge? Well, I don't know what the future holds for me right now. I'm obviously just stuck in New Zealand and, um, and looking at the world and seeing what's happening. But, um, you know, right now I'm very focused on getting a, a strong team together for GP next year. Um, I think that, you know, that's for me going to be... a I've got a bit of motivation to, to get one back on the Australians after losing in season one. So that's my short term motivation. And and after that, um, just see where that evolves. Um, as I said, I'd never rule out Olympic sailing in the future. And I would love to be involved in an America's cup team again, down the line. And, um, cause I miss those days of the design and development and, and, and testing those kind of boundaries. So at the end of the day, um, the way that you know my my life has worked to now is that opportunities present themselves to you here and there, and you 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 just take them when they come. And um, you know, right now it's a tough year for a, a lot of people, so we'll see what opportunities come uh, in the coming years.
1: What about an Olympic uh, windfoiling campaign? I hear you're buzzing around uh, Auckland on the foils <laughs> yeah. a no, lot I, these days.
0: I bought one the other. Um, I bought one basically when lockdown began. I kind of realized quite quickly that. Um, as we were going into to this form of lockdown, the international travel was going to stop, and there wasn't going to be much opportunities to do any racing anywhere. And good group of people here in New Zealand um, sailing the windfoiling class. And so I um, really thought that'd be a really cool skill to learn. I've sailed the moth for ages, and um, you know I didn't didn't think I'd be able to get to any events. But windfoiler is is a cool class, and I've uh, been out on it quite a lot on the harbour and. Um, don't know if it'll be an Olympic campaign for me, but I'm, I'm definitely um, excited about the board and, and you know, testing myself with those skills. And hopefully I can get to do some racing in over this summer in New Zealand and see if I'm half decent at it or not.
1: Well, I no need to let you go and um, check in with your, your boy who's just woken up. But just before you go, um, I just need to ask you your worst wipeout ever. The floor is yours.
0: Oh, our worst wipeout, you know, for, for multiple reasons was that capsize in in Beijing. You know, it cost an Olympic gold medal. Um, it was a, a massive nose plant and, um, yeah, one that I haven't forgotten and it definitely changed the way I sailed 49ers after that moment. Before that, I always thought you had to go fast and flap the kite to avoid waves and since reviewing that capsize and watching how other people were sailing, I learned that you can actually choke the spinnaker and slow the boat down to avoid waves. So, um, you know, that was, that was brutal for multiple reasons and, you know, something that haunted me for a long time.
1: And something you learned from. Exactly. Hey, look, we really look forward to um, seeing you back out on the water um, whenever that may be. Um, really appreciate your time today. And, um, yeah, we, Lots of insight there into so many different facets of your career. So, um, you know, thanks so much for joining us on Reach Radio.
0: No worries. It was great to chat and relive a bit of the past.
1: <laughs> well, that's it for another episode of Broad Reach Radio. Thanks for tuning in. If you've got any suggestions or feedback, then feel free to drop me a line at michaelb.yachtingnz.org.nz. At and if you like what you've been hearing, then give us a follow. I'll be back in a fortnight with another interview.